Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Haya Children's Vitamins. That's H-I-Y-A. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise. And most brands on store shelves are filled with sugar, unhealthy additives, and other gummy junk that kids really should never eat. This is why I like Haya. Haya makes children's vitamins with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet they taste great and they are perfect for picky eaters. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full body nourishment that our kids need with a yummy taste that they love. I love that they are manufactured in the U.S. with globally sourced ingredients, each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. Haya arrives straight to your door on a pediatrician-recommended schedule, and your first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers. Then every month thereafter, Haya sends a no-plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins. Which means Haya isn't just good for your kids, it's also good for the environment. You no longer have to worry about running out of your vitamins, and they will automatically arrive when you need them. Check them out at hayahealth.com slash wellnessmama, and you can save 50% on your first month subscription at that link. Again, that's H-I-Y-A health.com slash wellnessmama. This podcast is brought to you by Armra, which is a new colostrum I have been experimenting with and had to tell you guys about because you know I'm always on the lookout for new ways to improve immunity and gut health, fitness, metabolism, enhance my skin and hair. And I have been really playing with this new colostrum product. Colostrum is the first nutrition we receive in life and it contains all the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. But the Armra One specifically is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients that rebuild the barriers of your body and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed benefits. It strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, and it has anti-inflammatory gut fortifying properties. It can improve hair growth and skin radiance. I've been using it for fitness and recovery and also has a host of well-studied anti-aging benefits. And this one is a premium one, other like unlike other ones I've tried. It's natural, sustainable, and they've done research and testing from start to finish. Unlike most colostrums, which use heat that depletes their nutrient potency, they leverage their proprietary cold chain biopotent technology, which is an innovative process that purifies and preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients while removing things like casein and fat to guarantee that it's highly potent and bioavailable and more so than any other one on the market. They go above and beyond industry standards and they invest in expensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure that they always meet the highest demands of purity and efficacy and are glyphosate free. And for you, for listening, they have a special offer just for you to receive 15% off your first order by going to tryarmra.com slash mama15 and using the code mama15 to save 15%. So that is T-R-Y-A-R-M-A.com slash mama15. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and please excuse my voice is still a little bit recovering today, but I really, really enjoyed this interview and this conversation. I'm here with Sunil Gupta and we talked a lot about the meaning of Dharma and finding your purpose in an overwhelmed life. And he is certainly the man to talk about this. He talks about how he lost his Dharma and then discovered it again. And he's an author and a visiting scholar at Harvard Medical School. His work is to study the most extraordinary people on the planet and discover and share simple, actionable habits that lift our performance and deepen our daily sense of purpose. And his work has been featured all over for doing just that. But we talk in depth today about his new book, which is all about 
uncovering your dharma and nurturing that in your daily life. And I love how he talks about that this is more of a revelation than a transformation, that it's uncovering and getting things out of the way of what's already there. And we get a lot more fine-tuned and in-depth with that conversation. He also provides some very practical things you can try in daily life to help find your dharma if you don't already know what that is. And I really love a lot of his outlook and the steps that he gives in this process. So I highly recommend checking out his book if you haven't already and also joining us for this conversation. So without further ado, let's join Sunil Gupta. Sunil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Uh, Katie, it's so great to be here. I love your show. Oh, thank you. I'm excited for our chat today. And we're going to get to go deep on several topics, including the topic of your most recent book. But before we jump into that, I have some notes from your bio that I would love to hear some backstory on. One being that through most of your teens, you were clinically obese. And I went through a similar experience with having six kids in nine years and thyroid issues. Um, and also that your parents started a Bollywood karaoke group. And I would love to hear a little <laughs> bit of context on both of those. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess let's start with you know, being a child who was overweight, you know, I would say generally my family uh, struggled with their, with, you know, with weight. My father uh, had a triple bypass surgery when he was in his early forties. We rushed him to the hospital and, um, you know, we nearly lost him that day. And it was a really scary, I think, time for, I think all of us, I was 11, around 11 years old at the time. And I remember sitting by his hospital bed and, and I remember that the hospital had given him these sheets of paper and it was like, you know, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, we don't, we don't really eat broccoli and Brussels sprouts at home. We're an Indian family. You know, we, we, we do a lot of Indian cooking at home. And I, I just had this suspicion that my, my dad was not going to be able to stick to this diet or the exercise program that they had laid out. And, and that was true. You know, he, he really struggled with that when he got home. And I did as well as, as a kid who overate and, but we ended up getting the help of a personal uh, nutritionist. The hospital, the insurance company, luckily they paid for it, knowing that my dad was sort of going to go back to the condition he was in before. They helped pay for it. And uh, that really changed our life. Um, you know, it cleaned up the way we ate, uh, held my dad accountable to, to, to ways of working out and the ways that we exercise. And, and unsurprisingly, it was, it was all about the little habits. It was the little things, you know, it wasn't a wholesale change of like, you know, removing carbs from the diet or anything like that. It was more about, you know, drinking water before every meal, making sure that after having dinner, you were having it at a time that was a few hours before bed and getting a little bit of a little bit of movement in between dinner and sleep. There were these cornerstone habits and they changed our lives. My, my dad ended up losing weight at that time. This was the 1990s and doctors had given him maybe 10 years to live. You know, right before I, I came on with you, Katie, I talked to my dad. He, he, uh, he was going out for a three mile walk. It's been over 30 years. And so, you know, that really had a profound impact on me. I, I ended up choosing uh, when I became an entrepreneur, I had started a couple of companies that did not work. When I started a company that did, it was really based on my dad's story. It was the one that I wanted to figure out how to how to basically bring nutritionist coaching into the hands of everybody. Yeah, you know, because right now or at that point in time, it was something that you could you had to be very sick or very rich to afford in your life. And I wanted to figure out, could we actually make this something that everybody could afford? And so we brought one on one uh, health coaching, wellness coaching to your mobile phone. And that was in 2012 when health apps were still relatively new. And um 
you know that that company ended up um, becoming the one that uh, was succeed was successful. We 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 ended up selling that to one medical, which is now owned by Amazon, and um, you know that kind of set me on the journey that I'm on right now. So that's the childhood obesity one. Do you want to talk about karaoke? I yeah, I'm curious about that because I certainly one of my deeper fears is singing in public, and I have made myself karaoke a couple times to face <laughs> that fear. But I know some people actually do it for actual fun. Yeah, yeah, you know karaoke for me has has like for my parents i think has been a really important part of their story my parents are both engineers but in 2000 the early 2000s we were living in michigan and michigan was going through a very very difficult time economically uh lots of manufacturing plants were shutting down uh the auto companies were hurting it was sort of the beginning of i think a lot of i think pain that was coming to Detroit's way, uh, my parents uh, both ended up getting uh, laid off from their from their jobs, and and they were in their fifties, and, and so it was kind of one of those ages where it was a little bit hard for them to go out and find um, something else. So instead, we just kind of you know hunkered down. We used whatever savings we had, and we were able to make it work financially. But the the issue was really more that I think when you sort of lose this this job that you've been going to for decades, what do you do with your life? You know, where's where your purpose? And, um, you know, for my parents, they ended up finding that through Bollywood karaoke. My dad literally went out and he he uh, he bought a machine from Costco, brought it home one day and, and um, you know, ended up getting some tracks that he used to listen to as a kid when he was living in India. And um, my parents both started to sing. Uh, but then they started to invite friends over, people who had also been laid off from their jobs. And they started to sing. And all of a sudden, it became this routine where if it was Friday night, it was Bollywood bash night at the Gupta's three-bedroom home in Metro Detroit. And... Um, it's something that they began in the early 2000s and it's something they've continued to this day. I mean, literally, if you call my parents on, on a Friday night, chances are they're karaoke. But if you think about it, you know, Katie, like, and I think this gets to a lot of what you just talk about on the show. It's, it's these, it's these cornerstone habits, but it's also everything that happens in between, you know, having karaoke on a Friday night might not seem like the kind of thing that fills you up with purpose, but at the same time, what you're doing in between those Friday nights is you're preparing the music, you're preparing the songs, you're thinking about what you want to wear, you're memorizing things so that you can, you can sort of be off script a little bit. You're working on your vocals. It's something that my parents do together. And that really tightens their bond as husband and wife. And, 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 and then they, and then they have community. They, they end up connecting with other people and those relationships live beyond sort of the karaoke floor. And so it has in a lot of ways, I think, given them the, 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 the sort of missing sense of not only purpose, but identity community that I think we all crave. I love that. And it I feel like it's a perfect springboard into our conversation. And it highlights, you're right, some things I talk about very often on here. The first relating to your first story being that it's often the small, consistent and free habits that make the biggest difference in the long run. And they're often overlooked because they're so simple. And maybe the fancy biohack seems more shiny and exciting. But it's those small habits of you know, whether it's morning sunlight, hydration, stopping eating before bedtime with enough time to digest, those little things really do add up. And then the other one I talk about so much is community. And so I love that your parents found a really fun way to nurture community that as an added bonus, I've talked about before, when we use our vocal cords, we stimulate things like the optimal production of thyroid hormones, the vagus nerve, like so many great things happen when we sing. And I don't know if it was causational at all, but I know when I started voice lessons, it was around the time my thyroid issues resolved. So I always love to give that as like free advice to anyone is at least just sing in the shower, try singing somewhere because 
using your voice can have a profound benefit. But I feel like those are a great springboard into what will be the bulk of our conversation today. And I think before we move forward, it's going to be important to define a term that's part of the title of your book and also a sort of a base term for this whole conversation, which is the word Dharma. And I would guess maybe people have at least heard the word, but might not have a really concrete definition of what it means. So to start there, will you define what you mean by Dharma? Sure, sure. So, you know, most people who I talk to who've heard the word Dharma sort of quit it with purpose. And and generally that's true. What is your what is your purpose in life? But in the book, we really try to go more specific than that. And the equation that I that I offer is that Dharma is equal to essence plus expression. Essence plus expression. Essence is who you are, and expression is how you show up in the world. And Dharma is really the art of aligning those two, aligning who you are with what you do. And every small alignment really makes a huge difference, right? So oftentimes when we think about purpose or calling, we sort of think that we need to, we need to make a grand gesture or a big sweeping change in our life. And oftentimes that's not the case at all. The book is packed with sort of people who were able to make little changes in their lives. And by making these little changes, they were able to completely transform who they were. I'll give you an example if you want. In chapter one, there's a woman named Mila who is a project manager inside a big company. And, you know, like a lot of us, like she's a working mom. She is, she is uh, completely overwhelmed, but she's also not finding a lot of joy in her work. You know, she's kind of showing up day to day and it, it's a paycheck more than it is a passion. And what she sort of, when she reflects on her life, one of the things that she realizes is that she loves to teach, like she loves teaching and she wished that she could go back and become a teacher. But the problem is that when she looks at her finances, she looks at where they are as a family, that just doesn't seem very reasonable for her, right? To, to, to quit her job, the family relies on her salary, they rely on her healthcare insurance, to go back and get her teaching certificate at night when she has kids at home. All this stuff isn't really adding up. So like, I think a lot of us, she feels stuck. But one day she's sitting down with a mentor and she is kind of confiding in her mentor how unhappy she really is. And her mentor leans back in her chair and she takes a sip of coffee. And then she asks Mila, like, what is it specifically about teaching that you love? Right. And as Mila really takes a hard look at that question, what she was able to do is go beneath the title of teacher and into what she really actually loves about teaching. And when she went down to that level, what she started to realize is that she loves to help people grow. Like that's her, that's her essence. That's what makes her come alive. And yes, teaching was one way to express that essence, but there are also many other ways to express that essence as well. You know, and what she ends up doing is she makes a little shift, like a little shift inside her same department into a role that gets her involved with learning and development, where she can start training other people. And as soon as she starts making that shift, everything changes. She comes alive in a brand new way. She goes from dreading her work to getting out of bed with enthusiasm and energy. Her husband notices, her kids notice. She becomes a rising star in the company. And all of this was done without changing her parking spot, without changing her company, right? She, she didn't have to abandon everything in order to make this huge, I think this huge big change in her life. And I think that's the myth that ultimately we, we are trying to debunk here in this book is that it seems sometimes that we have already taken a path. And when we've taken that path, we feel stuck in that place. And yes, we wish we could rewind the clock and do things differently, but often that's not a liberty that we have, right? But the, but the good news is that you don't have to abandon who you are in order to transform the way you live, 
oftentimes your dharma, these little ways of expressing who you are through what you do, is available to you right now just where you are. I love that. And it seems especially relevant to moms because I know many of us, it's we, we don't have the option nor would we want to, to change our path and not have our children anymore. But so we have our kids. That's a very big part of our lives. And also I know moms at times can feel like maybe they lose parts of themselves in motherhood, or at least those things get put on a back burner when kids take the focus. And so as I was starting to read through this book, I loved that because you really do highlight those little subtle shifts that can give more joy, more energy, more gratitude in your life without having to make a drastic major life change. And it also stood out to me, the term Dharma is not a new term. In fact, you talk about it being over a thousand years old, but, and you talk about this in the book as well, but it seems like this is actually especially relevant in today's world. But can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Dharma is, is over a thousand years old. You know, the first time that Dharma was really brought into sort of real kind of public domain was through a scripture called the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is sort of like the Hindu Bible, but it's been the kind of term that, that has really made its way from ancient to modern, from East to West. The, the book is filled with Western figures from Martin Luther King to Jimi Hendrix to Toni Morrison to Bob Marley that 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 really sort of brought dharma into their lives and were able to express themselves at a higher level because of that I, I think it is more relevant today than ever before because you know when we look at sort of where we are in the workforce you know and we look even for people who are are you know working from home or you know their their full-time responsibility is 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 raising a family one of the things we know is that the the number one driver for most of us for our mental health is what we do each day. And for those of us who are in the workforce, the person who has the biggest effect on our overall well-being, sometimes even more than a doctor or a therapist, is our boss. Right. And so we want to, I think sometimes we're under the mistake that, that work and wellness are these two separate worlds. Right. And oftentimes when we use the word balance, it sort of conjures up this image of spend enough time in each of those worlds. But I think what we're missing is that there actually isn't as much of a wall between those worlds. They affect one another. Our work affects our wellness in a profound level and our wellness affects our work. If we feel really, really good, we feel lit up, we're gonna be doing better work, right? And by the way, again, work can be the work you do in your community. It can be the work you do with your family. It doesn't necessarily have to be work for a company. But but these two worlds affect one another. They are both essential for the success that we are after. And so I think right now we are very much in a crisis of, I think, wellness and work where people feel more exhausted, more burnt out, more depleted than ever before. And as a result of that, we're in a place where you know, we're seeing everything that's happening in the workforce. People are leaving their jobs like they're churning like never before. It's very, very hard for job satisfaction to be found anywhere. We're quietly quitting. We're abandoning our, we're abandoning our work. And I think that there's this, this feeling of malaise that that we are all i think most of us are experiencing right now where a job is literally just becoming a job and the question might be asked like well what's wrong with that is there anything wrong with having a job that's a paycheck of course not right i mean we have priorities in our life we have we have we have we have paychecks we have bills we have we have all the things that we need i think to get done in order to take care of ourselves and, and the people around us that being said you're spending about half of your waking hours in a job Right. And if you don't like that, if you are truly not able to express who you are, you're hiding this part of you that we call Dharma each day, that has, that has a profound effect on your mental and physical health. Right. And so, yes, it is something that we, I think, you know, I think deserve 
to, I think, ask questions about. What is it that we can do in even small ways, I think, to start expressing who we are so that we can feel more joy in what we do? Yeah. And I love your focus in the book of making that seem very tangible and doable, again, without the major life shifts. And I would guess some people listening have a lot of clarity on what they feel like their dharma is and they're moving toward that. But I would guess there's also people listening who are thinking, like, I don't know what mine is. I Maybe I never figured that out. So for someone who doesn't feel like they have understanding or clarity of what their own dharma is, what is the process to start figuring that out? Yeah. So this is this is the first couple of chapters of the book is really about that. Yeah. If you don't know what your dharma is, or even if you have a sense of it, but you're not quite clear on it, how do we start to get more clear? And one of the sort of metaphors that I think is really important here is when Michelangelo would look at a sort of block of marble, he would say the sculpture is already inside. I don't have to go find the sculpture. I just have to chip away the layers that aren't necessary. And the same thing is true about your dharma. Your dharma is already inside of you. It's just been buried under other priorities, other expectations, all the day-to-day responsibilities, kids, drop-offs, aging parents, all the things that we're consumed by, right? Not to mention other people's judgments and priorities and expectations. A lot of that can sort of bury who we are from ourselves as well. So the act of finding your dharma isn't about going on this big expedition to go find that. It's more about sort of chipping away the layers that are hiding it. Right? It's not it's not a transformation as much as it is a revelation. And so what are the things that we need to do to start chipping away? And, and in the first couple of chapters of the book, we really talk about those chisels that we can use to chip away those layers. And sometimes the easiest chisels that we can use are really in the form of good introspective questions. So one of the simplest questions that I ask the people that I coach, the leaders that I work with, the, the people who are sort of thinking about reentering the workforce is what are the bright spots of your current day right now? So even if you don't like your job or you don't like your current situation, what are these tiny moments, even if they're fleeting, where you start to feel that energetic boost, right? And because if we can start to tune in to those bright spots, what that can allow us are little windows, little portals into what our essence really is, right? And sometimes in in non-obvious ways, like there was a, a nurse in the book who I talk about. Her name is Karen Struck. And Karen uh, became a, a lead nurse at a hospital, but did not really like her job. Like she was feeling way overwhelmed. She's feeling burnt out. Um, but what she realized is that every time she filled out patient paperwork, right, patient paperwork, she started to feel that energetic boost, that little thing that kind of like inside of her said, oh, this is kind of interesting. And while most people, most nurses would fill out these forms with like the clinical details of a patient, Karen found herself sort of compelled to start writing about the patient. Who were they? What did they love to do? What do they enjoy doing at home? And each of these patient forms almost turned into like a mini novel. And these mini novels would get passed around the hospital from other doctors and nurses because they were, they like read very, very well. And it reminded them of like, like what they did for a living and how important their work really was and the humanity of the people they were serving. And Karen started to realize, wow, writing is something that I really, really love to do. So she started to invest in that craft. It was a bright spot that she started to invest in and do more and more of. Whenever she had free time, she would be writing a little bit more. And eventually she was able to expand her career from full-time nurse into writing. She started to write screenplays and she started to write television shows. So it's one of these things that can happen in and just by like tuning into what are the things that are actually bringing you energetic joy right now? That's one of the chisels that we talk about in the book. I love that. And I would guess for many people, it brings up 
ideas that they would never have considered as ways to either integrate into things they're already doing, or like in her case, a side thing that she could do that eventually built on its own because of her passion for it without her having to just like we talked about in the beginning, step away from her current career in the first, like in the beginning until the other one grew. Another thing that stood out to me in the book was that this seems like a beautiful merging of Eastern and Western. And you, I feel like you connect those dots very well. I've noticed this pattern in the last 10 years or so in all, a lot of areas of health and medicine is modern science seems to be catching up to and confirming what a lot of Eastern tradition has known for a very long time. But I'm curious if any particular part stood out to you in that, because I love any time that you know, current science seems to verify what age-old wisdom has always known. Yeah, yeah, I'm such a such a great I think point, and and for me, not one that it was totally obvious to me. You know, I think my world as sort of an Indian kid growing up in a Western world, I always sort of created walls between those two worlds. I mean, I, I felt a lot of shame to be honest with you, like growing up in in a pretty much all white neighborhood. Um, I I wanted to hide who I was. You know, I, I tried to be as American as I possibly could. I would I would overwear Bruce Springsteen T-shirts to school. There were times when I, I caked baby powder onto my face to make myself look more white because I wanted to fit in. And I think as I as I grew up, I started to sort of feel the wall uh, between those two things start to come down. And, um, you know, there was an integration. And as I integrated myself, I began to realize how how integrated these these two worlds actually were, you know, outside of me as well. And Western science and Eastern wisdom do, I think, echo each other in many, many different ways. There's a chapter in the book called Prana, when Prana stands for extraordinary energy. How do we bring extraordinary energy back into our life, right? Because so many of us feel exhausted right now. And, you know, there's a story that begins with Vivekananda, who was a, who was an ancient Swami, 1920s, meeting Nikola Tesla. And the two of them have this chance encounter where all of a sudden they start to share ideas around this idea of prana and energy. And they get really animated and excited and they, they start, they start this collaboration that lasts for years and years. And, and it was one of these things that, that, that was very unlikely, right? And a lot of Tesla's sort of friends are like, why are you writing about this Eastern philosophy in your, in your Western papers? And he's like, well, because it's very important. It's something that actually resembles a lot of what we're talking about right now. And one of the concepts behind prana is what I call rhythmic renewal, rhythmic renewal. And what that basically means is that when we look at sort of um, the ways that high performers, people who are extraordinary in their fields, whether that be music or investing or arts, or they do a lot of things for their community, they're not waiting for long breaks or vacations in order to restore and recover. They are taking frequent focused breaks every single day. In fact, the average high performer that we study is is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day, eight breaks, which like I know sounds extraordinary, right? Like given the world we live in, it, it seems like very back to back to back. And it can feel right now, like every time you're about to start something net new, like you're already late for it, right? You finish one thing, you're late for the next thing. Like that that's the world that we live in right now. And it almost feels like it's getting faster and faster and faster. And one of the ways that we can sort of break that up is through what I call the 55-5 model. 55-5, which is that whenever possible, for every 55 minutes of work, you're taking five minutes of focused, deliberate rest. 
right? And, and that deliberate rest can be doing anything so long as it's not working. It's deliberately non-productive. You could be sipping on a cup of coffee. You could be listening to music. You could be, Katie, you like to sing. Maybe it's singing like a song, right? But it, it whatever you're doing, you're focusing on that one thing. You're not multitasking it. You're monotasking it. You're focusing on that one thing. And as soon as we start to break up our day with this rhythmic renewal, we start to find our energy begin to lift in a way that it hasn't before. The people that I coach, the teams that I work with, when I introduce them to the 55-5 model and they put it into practice for a couple of weeks, one of the most common pieces of feedback they come back to me with is that for the first time ever, they feel as much energy at the end of the day as they did at the beginning of the day just by practicing these rhythmic renewals throughout. I love that. And I love that term for it too. And I will say as a mom and a homeschooling mom, this is also a great strategy with kids is anytime we can, and sometimes with little kids, maybe even every 30 minutes, give them like we've done in school, five minute, like wiggle breaks, five minute singing breaks, five minutes running around the house in circles breaks. But anything that's a good pattern interrupt like that, I feel like for kids, they do come back almost instantly with so much renewed energy. Not that kids often struggle with energy, but the pattern interrupt is also really helpful for kids. I feel like. What's a, what's a wiggle break? So this I learned about when in therapy, I went through a lot of somatic therapy as I was releasing trauma and realizing things can store in our bodies. And so I did everything from rage therapy and to tantrum therapy, like all these different physical therapies to sort of release those emotions. And one of the ones they encouraged was to like throw a temper tantrum on purpose to help those emotions release. And so with the kids, it's not often a temper tantrum, but just like wiggling as much as we possibly can. And that movement, I feel like helps any kind of stuck or stagnant emotions to process a little bit more easily. And it also just helps the body feel great because you're getting movement and lymphatic movement and all those things. Oh my gosh, I'm totally taking a wiggle break after this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, you also talk in the book about what you call the most overrated skill in the modern world. And I would love for you to explain what you mean by that. Yeah, I think the most overrated skill in the modern world is reactivity, is is reaction speed. Um, we are constantly compelled to react faster and faster and faster, right? And I think social media has had a lot to do with this, right? Like the, the impulse to respond, react, to like, to get a like quickly. I think that, you know, if you look at sort of the way that we used to email back in the day, like, you know, when email first came out, if you look at reaction speeds, they were much slower than the reaction speeds today. When somebody sends an email, there's a lot of pressure, especially if it's somebody who you feel compelled to respond to. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure to respond quickly. And so reaction speed has become one of these things that has become almost sort of a, a quality that is an ex, like expected. If you don't respond within a certain period of time, it's very usual for people to say, oh, I'm so sorry for the delay, right? It's been like five hours. I'm so sorry for the delay, right? I, I think that what that does, though, is that it sort of takes away uh, what Viktor Frankl would call your freedom, right? Well, Viktor Frankl, Holocaust survivor uh, and also a neurologist, said that in between impulse and response, so in between the thing that causes us to react and our actual reaction, in between those two things is a space. And inside that space lies our freedom, right? And so if you don't have a lot of space between things that are causing you to react and your reaction, then you don't have a lot of freedom, right? And what we are, I think, constantly finding ourselves in is a situation where we're starting to lose that freedom. We're starting to lose that, that, that sense of, that sense of, um, you know, being able to uh, respond when we want to respond. Um, and it almost feels in some ways like we're being lived rather than actually living as a result of that. 
but there are ways to reclaim that that space and even if you can move it by an inch you start to feel like you're breathing again like you're you're coming alive again you know the book uh, in the book there's a, a chapter called upeka uh, which really gets into this and upeka is all about finding comfort in the discomfort so these moments that cause you make you want to re- re- react tend to be the moments that are are annoying they tend to be the moments that cause you anger, right? Um, those are the moments where we feel most impulsed to react. And that could be to our kids, that could be to our, that could be our, to, to people we work with. But there are little things that we can do again to expand that distance. Um, one of the, one of the ways, one of the practices in the book is what I call finding a home base, finding some place that you can go to internally when something prompts you to react. Right. And so that home base can literally be a physical gesture. It can be putting your hand over your heart, right? And feeling your heart from the inside, right? Feeling your hand from the inside of your body. Um, it can be visualizing something, right? It could be a stream that you used to visit as a kid or literally imagining petting your, petting your dog, even if your dog is not there in front of you, right? It can be just a little gesture. And what you're doing is you're just elongating. You're elongating that space just a little bit. But when you do that, what you're doing is you're creating, you're, you're creating choices of how you want to actually respond to something. Because when we have a knee-jerk reaction, oftentimes what that does is it, it becomes something that we don't, it takes away our choice, right? And the problem with that is that you may be somebody who has built incredible skill in your life, right? You, you may have done a, a lot of work on yourself. You may have done a lot of work on your interpersonal relationships. But when we have these knee-jerk reactions, those skills kind of go out the door because we're not giving ourselves enough time to be actually put to actually put those into practice. And literally by giving yourself just a couple more seconds sometimes, just a couple more seconds before you respond, opens the door back up to those skills. It gives you choices. And when you have those choices, you can reclaim your freedom. Yeah, I think this is such an important point. And especially in America, it seems like this really has become an issue. And I know there are even jokes floating around online that in Europe, you might email someone and their email response will be like, I'm sorry, I've gone to the beach for two months. I might respond when I get back. And in the US, they might be like, oh, I'm having a kidney transplant, but I'll respond within 48 hours. Yeah. And But it really highlights that we have become so react- quickly reactive and hyper-focused. And I know in my own life, a couple of things I've done with that intention of trying to be more present and less rushed, less reactive and and more just present with the actual people I'm with is I don't even know what my ringtone on my phone sounds like anymore because my phone is always on silent. And I think my voicemail says something along the lines of I'm trying to be present with the people in my life right now. So I will get to this when I get to this sort of thing. And you can email me if it's time sensitive and I'll also read that when I get to it. I love that. When did When did you start doing that? About three years ago, probably, when I just felt this increasing stress and urgency around my phone constantly pinging me to and people needing things. And then when I stepped back, I realized none of these things are life or death. None of these are emergency situations. My kids have the ability to call you know, multiple times in a row if there's an emergency and my phone will ring. That hasn't happened in three years. But there are, you know, there's fail safes in case the kids actually need something. But beyond that, like everything else, for the most part, can wait. And I also started making little shifts, like to your point, instead of saying things like, sorry for the slow reply, I'll try to focus on the positive and the virtue within it of like, thank you for your patience. Mm, I love that. And to like focus, speak to the positive, not the negative. But you're right. I think we've become so kind of stressed about that immediate response that we feel guilty if we don't immediately respond. Well, so here's a question I have for you then. Like, have you noticed over the past three years since you sort of adopted this new way of life, have you noticed any slips in your productivity at all? 
No, if anything, it's gotten, I've gotten more productive, but in less time. And and I'm much more present, like Mondays are my podcast days and I'm very present with podcasting and nothing's interrupting that. And all of that work happens and it's focused. And I feel like my attention is here. And when I'm with my kids, I feel very present with them, which makes them also feel, I think, more connected. And so they tend to like, I feel like with parents, especially when that connection is strong with your kids, because you're actually present, you're not just on your phone. They tend to not need as much attention from negative scenarios because they actually feel like their need for connection is being met. So that's actually reduced stress there. Same thing with all the relationships in my life. I feel so much more present in them that in a sense, it reduced the seeming need of all of those different things to require my time because I'm already present when I'm with them. I think it's so important because, you know, most people that I I work with, my students, even at even even my students at Harvard Medical School, you know, they're 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 running a mile a minute, right? They're hyper ambitious. They 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 they're they're living a life of purpose, but they're ultimately, I think, also experiencing a lot of burnout right now. And and you know, one of the things when I talk to them about this idea of not being as reactive, not moving as fast, that's scary for them. Because they kind of feel like if they adopt that way of life, what's going to happen as a result is that they're going to, they're ultimately lose out. They're going to be left behind. Right. And what I think is so important about like, you know, hearing from people like you who are incredibly high productive and look at this amazing, you know, podcast you've built. Plus you have six kids, plus your, your homeschooling. It's, it's incredible what you've been able to pull together that you've been able to do that without running a mile a minute or without actually having to respond as quickly as you did. One of the stories in the book that I talk about is the story of Carl Lewis, and Carl Lewis is an Olympic sprinter, and you know he would um, always start his races in the back of the pack, but you know was an incredible sprinter. He would win a lot of them, became an Olympic level legend, and so people were really confused by that because there was a sort of kind of a uh, almost a conventional wisdom that if you started out in the back of the pack, you weren't going to win the race. But he always did. And so this coach started to study his behavior. And what he realized is that while the other sprinters were were exerting maximum pressure right from the get-go, Carl Lewis was always exerting about 85% pressure, right? 85%. But he was he was continuous with it. It was 85% smooth and steady all the way to the end of the race. And so while other racers would tend to sort of run out of energy by the end, Carl Lewis would sort of whiz by them one by one and ultimately end up winning a lot of these races. And this 85% rule started to make its way outside of sprinting and outside of sports, even into business, into other areas, right? With this idea of like, do you, can we question the idea that maximum pressure equals maximum results? Because I think a lot of us have been conditioned that way. If you want maximum results, you better squeeze as hard as you possibly can. But as it turns out, and this is this goes well beyond Carl Lewis into lots and lots of peer-reviewed studies now, that if you can reduce the pressure just a little bit, what you may ultimately find is not only a higher quality of life, but actually better better outcomes. And I certainly experienced this. You know, one of the things I have to do as a writer is I have to get up in front of audiences and speak. And when I first started public speaking, just like a lot of people, I was really afraid to get up in front of large audiences. And what I would do is I would go like before I would kind of almost like psych myself up, self up and I'd be like, you know, this, you've got to do this. You know, you got to, you got to kill this speech. And, and I would, I would, I would put a lot of pressure on myself. And as a result, I would get up on stage and I would stutter. I would, I would feel really frantic and I would feel really nervous. And I know that the people in the audience like could feel my anxiety but as I started to kind of move in the other direction, which is in the moments before, even in the hours before a talk, I'd start to loosen the pressure, like right? really just relax 
into this, I started to find myself getting on stage in a much more comfortable way, feeling much more confident about myself, being willing to make mistakes up there. And that was just much more fun for the audience as well. And I started to deliver better and better talks. So again, I think it comes back to this experiment that we ought to, that we can run with ourselves sometimes very easily, which is that for these situations that we think are important, whether it be at work or whether it be at home, we sometimes feel that putting maximum effort and intensity are going to give us the best results. Experiment with that. Start to reduce the intensity a little bit. Start to reduce the pressure a little bit. And then pay attention to the result. Did it actually go up or did it go down, right? And in most cases, what I hear from most people is if you can reduce the pressure just a little bit, right? Give yourself just a little bit of that breathing room. In almost every case, the outcome will actually be better and not worse. And that's so wild that you mentioned sprinting because so when I was reading through your book for my own Dharma, one thing that helped me crystallize was I actually have a tiny heart and a tiny question mark tattooed on my wrist so that I can see them when I'm typing. And I feel like part of my purpose in life is to help people love better and ask better questions. And those are what I keep coming back to in Wellness Mama. And one of the ways in the last few years I've gotten to do that is as a volunteer high school track coach because my daughter's a pole vaulter. And I noticed that same thing is when you tell kids to run at 100%, they are tense, their form is not as good, and they exhaust really fast. And if instead they're running somewhere in that 80 to 90% range, they are a lot more in flow and often faster. But they don't, but of course, getting high schoolers to not try to run all out is its own challenge. <laughs> yeah. But I also took that away as a lesson in life of just realizing, wow, maybe sometimes that pressure we put on ourselves is actually a form of resistance that's slowing us down mm-hmm. versus how do we get out of our own way and take that governor off and like let ourselves sort of just flow. So I love that you brought up sprinting as an example of that. This episode is brought to you by Haya Children's Vitamins. That's H I Y A. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise, and most brands on store shelves are filled with sugar, unhealthy additives, and other gummy junk that kids really should never eat. This is why I like Haya. Haya makes children's vitamins with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet they taste great and they are perfect for picky eaters. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full body nourishment that our kids need with a yummy taste that they love. I love that they are manufactured in the U.S. with globally sourced ingredients, each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. Haya arrives straight to your door on a pediatrician-recommended schedule, and your first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers. Then every month thereafter, Haya sends a no-plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins. Which means Haya isn't just good for your kids, it's also good for the environment. You no longer have to worry about running out of your vitamins, and they will automatically arrive when you need them. Check them out at hayahealth.com slash wellnessmama, and you can save 50% on your first month subscription at that link. Again, that's H-I-Y-A health.com slash wellnessmama. This podcast is brought to you by Armra, which is a new colostrum I have been experimenting with and had to tell you guys about because you know I'm always on the lookout for new ways to improve immunity and gut health, fitness, metabolism, enhance my skin and hair. And I have been really playing with this new colostrum product. Colostrum is the first nutrition we receive in life and it contains all the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. But the Armra One specifically is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients that rebuild the barriers of your body and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed benefits. It strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, and it has anti-inflammatory 
gut fortifying properties. It can improve hair growth and skin radiance. I've been using it for fitness and recovery and also has a host of well-studied anti-aging benefits. And this one is a premium one, other like unlike other ones I've tried. It's natural, sustainable, and they've done research and testing from start to finish. Unlike most colostrums, which use heat that depletes their nutrient potency, they leverage their proprietary cold chain biopotent technology, which is an innovative process that purifies and preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients while removing things like casein and fat to guarantee that it's highly potent and bioavailable and more so than any other one on the market. They go above and beyond industry standards and they invest in expensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure that they always meet the highest demands of purity and efficacy and are glyphosate free. And for you, for listening, they have a special offer just for you to receive 15% off your first order by going to tryarmra.com slash mama15 and using the code mama15 to save 15%. So that is T-R-Y-A-R-M-A.com slash mama15. You also use a term in the book called, I hope I pronounce it right, pronoia. Uh-huh. And I'd yeah. love for you to define that for us. Yeah, yeah. Pernoia is one of my favorite terms in the book. Pernoia is the opposite of paranoia. Uh, so if paranoia is in some way the belief that the world is conspiring uh, against you, right? That that things are out to sort of get you. Pernoia is the the belief that even when things are falling apart in the short term, in the long term, it is all sort of working out in your favor, right? The, the universe is in some ways laying down building blocks that will ultimately be to your benefit. And it's a really, really hard concept. I think for me, as somebody who has started companies that that failed, as somebody who has been, you know, let go from jobs, has has run for public office and lost, it has been tough for me to sort of really get my head around pronoia. But as I look at things in a much more zoomed out way, I start to realize how these things were actually working in my favor. Right? And it's one of those things that we can, I think, all to often do for ourselves is to take these painful moments. And it doesn't happen in every painful moment, but but in a lot of the painful moments in our lives, we can start to kind of take a look with some perspective, you know, and years later and say, how did what were the what was the good that happened? What what was the path that that ended up taking me down? Because ultimately we may find that it ended up taking us to an even better place. One of the sort of examples of pranoia or metaphors of pranoia came out of ancient Japan. It's called Kintsugi. And Kintsugi is the art of golden repair. And it all sort of started with a shogun in the, in the 15th century who shattered his favorite bowl. And it was a, a very lucky sort of holy bowl for him. And he was really devastated. And so he sent it to a repair shop. And when it came back, it came back stapled. Like the parts were stapled together. So functionally it was, it was there, but it, but it was really kind of ugly. And so he said, like, this is no good. So he sent it to an artist. And of course, an artist couldn't necessarily like super glue, like everything back together. But what the artist did instead is it, he, the artist actually laid this golden lacquer in all of the cracks in the bowl. So when the Shogun received his bowl back, it had this like almost like tracing of like golden lines through the bowl. So it looked very different than it did before, but it was beautiful. Right. And that became known as this art form called Kintsugi, but it expanded into a philosophy of life, which is that these cracks in our life 
can ultimately lead us to the beauty, right? It can ultimately lead us to the things that we that we are looking for, that we are searching for, right? And you know, there's a there's this great Sufi saying that I I remind myself of over and over again. My my I have two kids. I have a I have an 11 year old daughter and a six year old daughter. And my 11 year old daughter, I just shared this quote with her for the first time the other day, and. It, it like surprisingly, like she like looked at me and like said, Oh, like that kind of makes sense. And here's the quote The world is going to break your heart, break your heart, break your heart until one day, if you allow it, your heart will crack open. Right. And, and from that openness, from that cracked open heart that we start to find love, it's where we start to find real joy. It's where we start to find our real power, right? If we can allow our heart to crack open. And that is really sort of the, 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 the idea behind pronoia, right? Is that, you know, one of the ways I used to look at the world is through a series of steps. I'm climbing a mountain, right? And I just want to climb step after step after step. And the idea behind pronoia is that it's really not a set of steps. It's a cycle. And in this cycle, you win, you lose, you win, you lose, right? And you keep going through the cycle over and over again. Good things happen, bad things happen, good things happen, bad things happen. But every time you go through the cycle, you start to get stronger. You start to grow, right? And you start to realize that in a lot of ways, while success is wonderful, it is also a lousy teacher. And it's these moments of setback, it's these moments of mistakes that really end up making us who we are. That is the idea behind Pranaya. I love that so much. I also love that you mentioned Viktor Frankl in this conversation because he's my most reread book of all time. It's my yearly read. And also, Pernoia to me lines up with a saying I stole from a friend of mine, Tina, which is everything works out perfectly for me. And I say this often. And of course, that doesn't mean it works out the way I think I want it to, but everything works out perfectly for me. And like you, I can look back and realize with that 10,000 foot view, even the things that at the time I thought were terrible ended up leading to a path that ended up becoming beautiful. And over time, I've tried to nurture the skill of not having to wait so long to realize that gratitude and to even when possible in that moment of what feels like a bad, quote unquote, bad situation to find gratitude for it in that moment, which also seems to have a side effect of relieving some of the discomfort in the moment itself. Yeah, it's To me, it's just a good reminder. And so I love that you talk about that in the book as well. Um, I know that there's obviously so much more in this book than we can cover in one podcast episode, but I would love if you could walk us through maybe a couple of practical rituals people can do or baby steps to begin to nurture and find out what their dharma is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we talked about the chisels, right? And and I think that one thing that we can often ask ourselves that'll give us a nice sort of clue in to our own dharma is what would I do for free? Right. What is that thing that I would do even if I wasn't compensated or I didn't have to, I didn't feel obligated to do, right? But I would still do it. And that's not to say, by the way, that we need to go like quit our jobs and like not take a salary because we have to pay the bills. We have to do our things, right? We, we like this is, we have the practicalities of life. But just as a thought experiment, if you can separate out compensation from the job itself, just as a thought experiment, what would I do anyway? That can be a really nice way to start to clue yourself in to these things that that matter to you at a at a function that's much more important than money right and one of the ways that we talk about this in the book and and this is also a helpful sort of prompt to think about is like success has both inner success and outer success we tend to focus on outer success which is wealth status money achievement but there's also inner success which is meaning its purpose its joy and the idea behind dharma isn't to shame 
either of these, right? It's not to shame outer success. If, if you want to achieve, if you have ambition, if you have goals, that's fantastic. Please do that, right? But but the idea behind Dharma is really that just knowing that you can have all the outer success in the world, and that may not necessarily lead you to inner success, right? And it happens all the time. We all know people who have achieved incredible status and wealth, but are feeling empty inside. But on the other hand, you can flip the equation. You can start with inner success, these things that really do fill you up on the inside, and then let that overflow into outer success. So what I do for a living is I go out there and I study leaders, people who have achieved at their highest level across different industries um, and try to unpack their habits. And I would say that if there's really one common denominator amongst people who have made a transformation in their life to, I think, achieve at a higher level, it's that they started to shift from outer success to inner success. They started to figure out what really, really makes them come alive, right? And because when you do that, you bring a higher level of productivity, creativity, mission-drivenness, service, all of these things that we associate with, I think, tremendous results, that start, stuff starts to come much more naturally. And when it starts to come much more naturally, that just naturally will overflow into outer success. So I think really starting to kind of differentiate for yourself, where is the outer success in my life? Which again, there's nothing wrong with that. And where is the inner success in my life? And how do I start to let inner success overflow into outer success? I love that. And it also brings the question to mind for any parents listening. Um, I know many of us might be in the experience of learning these things as an adult or figuring out what our dharma might be as an adult. Are there any things we can do to help our kids at various ages to have maybe a shorter road in that process or to, because it seems like kids are naturally a lot more tapped in in some ways to things that would line up sort of as their natural dharma. Are there any things we can do to help them nurture that? think that we have been raised, I'm guessing, Katie, you were as well, with an occupation mindset. And basically, when we were asked as kids, like, what do you want to be? You know, what people were expecting was, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. I want to be an architect, right? And it was an occupation. What I think we can do for our kids was we can start to encourage them to go one layer beneath that, which is not just what do you want to do, but what do you love, right? And I call this in the book, your essence mindset, right? What are these things that actually make you come alive? even if they're not the kind of thing that can belong on a LinkedIn profile, right? I love to tell stories. I love to make people feel good about themselves. I love to, you know, build things, make things, right? These are essences, right? And if you can start to tap into that essence, what you begin to realize is that there are many, many different ways to express that essence, right? So as opposed to an occupation mindset where all of a sudden now it's like do or die fixed into kind of one specific job title, when you go to the essence level, when you go beneath that, you start to realize that there's a world of possibilities out there. And ultimately, like if you look at the way that my kids and your kids are going to end up in the workforce, they're going to end up doing lots of different things, right? Like my parents were engineers for their entire career, right? And for me, I've had a few different jobs myself, but for my kids, I just think that that's going to end up being just the way of life. Then it may end up being that they're doing multiple things at once, right? They're almost like mini little studios. And as long as we stick ourselves in this occupation mindset, I think I think we're rubbing against the reality of this new world of work. But I think if we can go down to the level of what is it that actually makes you come alive and starting to, to like help our kids like understand like how to tune into that for themselves, like giving them the feedback of like, wow, I really noticed that when you were doing that thing, like I saw you light up and that was really cool. But letting them sort of 
build the skill of tuning into themselves as well. Where are the bright spots in my day? Where are these energetic moments? That brings them beneath this occupation mindset into an essence mindset. And when they can live from that place, they can express themselves in, in limitless ways. I love that. And a few last questions I love to ask at the end of interviews. The first one being, where can people find the book? And I know you have other resources available. You do a lot of other things as well. Where can people find you and keep learning? Yeah. I mean, just you search for everyday Dharma. Um, and you'll find the book and, and it's an easy read. And I also, I also narrate it as well. So if you, if you like to listen to your books, it's available for you there as well. And then, you know, my website is, is sinealgupta.com or you can check me out on Instagram, send me a DM and I'll, I'll write you back. It's just a, it's just sinealgupta, S-U-N-E-E-L-G-U-P-T-A on Instagram. And speaking of books, I'm curious if there is a book or number of books that have profoundly impacted you personally. And if so, what they are and why? Oh yeah. We talked about Viktor Frankl before. Man's Search for Meaning is definitely on that list. The other one that I, I you you probably have gotten before is The Alchemist. The Alchemist is just one of my favorite uh fiction books of all time. But the idea behind The Alchemist, I think, is profound and important. It's told in this really kind of like mystical sort of way, which is that like it is the journey. It is not the destination. You know, it's really about the story of a boy who's out there looking for his treasure. And what he realizes in the end is that the treasure was in the path. It was in this journey itself. Um, and it's told in a really, really beautiful way. One of my favorite books of all time. I love it. I will link to your book and to those as well in the show notes for you guys listening on the go. And lastly, any parting advice for the listeners today that could be related to something we've covered or unrelated life advice that you find helpful? Oh, gosh. I, you know, my grandfather is the first person that ever taught me about Dharma. And one of the things that he said to me is that the world is like a sitar. And the sitar is like an Indian musical instrument with, with lots of strings. It's almost like a guitar in, in some ways. Um, and he said that, you know, everybody represents one string. You're one string. I'm one string. So there are billions of strings on the sitar. And the thing about that is that your, your job in life is really to learn how to play your string, right? It's to tap into your essence. It's to tap into who you are and to express that. And the thing that's beautiful about that is that when you play your string, not only does it have an effect on what's coming out of you, it has an effect on what's happening with the collective sound of the universe. You start to, you start to, I think, influence in a positive way the way the entire, the entire harmony sounds, right? And so I think that's something that's so important to remember is that when you begin to make these little alignments to start to live more in your Dharma, to express a little bit more of who you are, not only is that affecting your life, it's giving other people permission as well. They're looking, people are watching, and it gives them the permission that they need to start expressing theirs. I love that analogy and that advice. And I'm so grateful for your time today. This has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Katie. I love your show and I love what you're doing. You're clearly, clearly living your dharma. And I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Thank you. And thanks as always to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us both today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.